Psalm 15. Let's turn there. Well, this is a short psalm. It's one of the shorter ones that we've looked at. But there's an awful lot here. And so we want to jump right into the text this morning. So read that with me. And then we'll ask God again to bless his word in our time together as we study his word. Psalm 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, and who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be sturdy, stable, reliable, consistent people. We want to be immovable. But as this, your word has just told us, Lord, we can just quickly scan our week and see how, how much we've fallen short of these things. And yet today, Lord, I pray for just an uprising of your spirit within your people, that your grace might be poured out so that not only might we understand what your word says here, but Lord, how we might implement the change that we need to glorify you as people of integrity. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Notice how verse 1 starts. Punctuation is important, right? Starts with a question. How, who can sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? I think sometimes a question, and you see this in the teachings of Jesus pretty frequently, sometimes a question is better than even a state, a declarative statement. Because it makes you think. It makes the hearer really dig down deep. Now, answers are good though. We need answers. I think that there is a desire for truth that's planted in every person, maybe down deep, but I think it's put there by God himself so that there's a part of us who wants to know the truth, who wants the answer to this kind of a question. The, tr- the trouble is when the answer to the question isn't the answer that we want, right? It's not the answer that we expect. It's not the answer that we hope for. Uh, it's kind of like you go to the ATM and you check your bank account balance and you kind of cringe a little bit because you don't know what the answer is going to look like. But you know what? You need to know the answer so that you can live life the way that you should, right? David here, his question is significantly more eternal and important than just the balance of his checking account. This question here at the beginning of chapter 15 is really, it's a matter of eternity. Eternity is hanging in the balance when we think about this question that David is posing. Who can be right with God? Who can be in his presence? Who can sojourn in your tent, he says. That's a good phrase to use. I don't know all the translations that might be out there this morning, but sojourn is a good phrase to use here because it kind of means to turn aside from your normal path and visit someplace and go to someplace new. You're passing through. 
where you might stay with somebody. And in David's day, a lot of times when they were traveling, especially they stayed in tents, right? So you might stay, sojourn, stay in somebody's tent. It means to abide, to gather, to remain. So if you think about traveling in David's day, sojourning, as it were, it meant that if you were going to be a guest of David, you were under his care. So all of your needs, he would provide what to, what to drink, what to eat, where to stay. If there was danger, you were then a part of his camp and he would protect you. He would provide all of those things to you. You would have shelter with him as long as you were with him. Some of your translations use the word tabernacle instead of tent. If the tabernacle was a place where mankind, people, met with God, then David's longing to abide in his tabernacle is really just saying, how can he abide in the presence of God? That's where God dwelled, the presence of God dwelled. So his question, if we could rephrase it into maybe more modern-day language, could be this. How can a person be in the presence of God? How can a man or a woman live and walk with God closely? How can a person be right with God? If we condense it down to that question, I would hope that every person here would say, that's that's a pretty important question. It's a pretty good question for David to ask. If there is a God and if he can be known and if we can be in a a right relationship with him, shouldn't we want that? Wouldn't we want to be with him? Wouldn't we want to be where he is? This is the question that David poses. Who can dwell with him? Who has the right to live in the presence of God? That's the question, okay? We've set that up. David has used that at the beginning. Now come the answers. They are descriptions of a person who is in right relationship with God. They are attributes for us maybe to compare to our own lives. And again... Maybe like checking your account balance, the answer may hurt. The answers here may be difficult, but if we are to live life as we ought to, we need to know the answer to this question. Look at verse 2. We start the answers here. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So who can dwell on his holy hill? Simply put, the person who has integrity. That's a word you're going to hear. Uh, Jason read from Psalm 26 earlier, and David saying he has lived out in integrity. That's the, the idea here behind this psalm as well. But as we think about the person with integrity, notice in this verse, this person that it's being described here, notice his walk, his works, and his words. It's all captured here. This is a description of the outward character of a person's life that has already surely been changed by the Lord. Now, we can be sure from Jesus' teaching and from Scripture as a whole that this person with integrity that's being described here, they haven't just worked really hard to earn God's love, jumped through all the right hoops, checked all the right boxes. They've received God's love as a gift, and now they work hard as a result of his love in their life. Jesus talked about this. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, you'll know them by their fruit. You guys have heard that from his sermon there. You know the heart and the health of a person by what comes out of their mouth, he says. 
He says, actually, he kind of talks about this whole context in a negative. Because he's talking about bad fruit being produced by bad trees. He says, a bad tree can't produce a good fruit. It doesn't work. And in fact, with the situation with the fig tree that was all leafed out, it looked like it should have a bunch of figs on it, and it didn't. And he cursed it. That's not what we're looking for. A diseased tree can't bear good fruit, and a good tree won't bear diseased fruit. It will bear fruit. So he says, you'll know them that way. So the person with integrity, their walk is blameless. And when we hear this, if you're like me at least, you hear sinless perfection. person with integrity never sins. Can that be the case? If that's true, if that's what this means... The only person that falls in that category is Jesus himself, right? So what does this describe then? We know that perfect holiness is only found in Jesus Christ, but his spirit in his people molds them day by day more and more into his image as they submit to him and as they follow him. So instead of perfection, I think a better way, and some of your translations put it this way, The idea of walking uprightly or blameless really means to walk in integrity. How do we walk in that regularly? Well, the kind of person that does with integrity, they don't lean too far in one direction. They're not given to extremes in their life. There's a balance there, and it's evident in how they walk every day and how they live their life day by day. It's not just visible to others in their walk, though. It's visible in their works, in what they do. Verse 2 says that they worketh righteousness in the King James Version. Their faith shows it. Their faith is evident by what they do, by their good works. And we know that our works, the good works that we produce, are just an evidence of the heart change that's already happened in the person who has been changed by Jesus. So the person with integrity shows it in the things that they stand for. They show it in the things that they do. But then thirdly, they also show it in the way that they speak, in their words, in what they say. Verse 3, if you glance down at that, it really deals with the words that come out of our mouths. But first, in verse 2, we have to consider what kinds of words we're actually speaking to ourselves. That's an interesting thought kind of words we're speaking to ourselves. Are, are you being honest with yourself about God and your relationship, about life and how you're living it? Or are you telling lies to yourself? We can do that more easily than we realize. And I think we do. And I don't think we have to think very hard to come up with an example about what this is talking about. Because the enemy our own flesh and the world, they would all have us believe that the world revolves around me, right? That, that's how we come out of the womb feeling, catered to my needs. I want my happiness to be paramount in every situation. And so the lies that we sometimes say to ourselves sound maybe something like this. I know it's wrong, but I've put up with so much already. I deserve a little bit of happiness. Or maybe another lie would sound like this. My needs aren't being met 
in the way that I think that they should be. And so I'm going to meet them another way. It might be wrong, but surely God wants me to be happy. And on and on we go, justifying our own sin and lying to ourselves about it. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Then the words that we tell ourselves are really, really important. Are you speaking truth to your own heart? We must ask ourselves that question today. Because every one of us is in constant conversation with ourselves. I I don't mean you have multiple personalities. I just mean that you say things to yourself that you will then believe and act on and live out. That's why it's been suggested that we preach the gospel to ourselves every morning when we wake up. Because we're tempted to abandon it for the lies that the world and our own flesh are telling ourselves. What will we believe? Who will we listen to? Is what you're preaching to yourself something of your own design? Or is it the same thing that Jesus taught and the apostles preached? There's a war being fought in the battleground of our heart constantly. We don't always want what God wants. If we're honest, we're going to come to that conclusion. There are times when we think our way is better than God's. There are times when there are things other than what God calls me to that appear to be more attractive, more beneficial, more beautiful. And it's a lie. So what we speak to our heart, as the psalmist puts it here, is vital to being the kind of person that's described here in Psalm 15. If you don't believe that it's that important, if you're like, eh, I think you're stretching this a little bit, just glance back to the first verse of Psalm 14. Just one chapter before. Look at the first verse there. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Only a fool tells themselves lies about God or lies in general. A fool says in his heart, now none of us want to be considered a fool. I can, I'm sure of that. And yet, in order to enjoy our sin and in order to remain in it, we have to convince ourselves that God doesn't exist or that God isn't doesn't care about what I do in life. And so we say, my sin doesn't really matter because there's no God to judge me or God doesn't really care all that much. That's really appealing actually to our own fallen sinful nature. And so many people buy it hook, line, and sinker. Jesus said this, the way to destruction is wide. If we could choose between accountability in life and just living however we want with no consequences, man, we're going to choose the latter in that probably every time. But here's the thing. We don't get that choice. We don't really get to choose because we don't determine what's true or not. That's not our choice to make. Something, in fact, someone outside of us, higher than any of us, He determines the truth. Otherwise, if he didn't determine the truth and we did, truth would change with the time frame, the culture that we're in, the whims of society, 
all of those things would change truth. And so truth can't come from any of us or any of the things that we design. It has to come from outside of us and higher than us. And it does through God and his word. Paul, the apostle, he quotes Psalm 14.1. That's probably a verse that you were familiar with. He quotes this in Romans. And he reminds people in his day that only a fool would preach lies to themselves about God. Only a fool. How often do we convince ourselves of the lie that there is no God and look sin straight in the face and just run straight to it? More often than I think we'd like to admit. So the message that you're preaching to your own heart is extremely important. That's what we learn from verse 2. But not only that, but what then we preach, what we say to others outside with our mouths, outside of our own heart, is really important as well. Because here's the truth. I think this is real. You won't speak truth to others if you're speaking lies to yourself, right? You can't speak truth to someone else if you're not speaking truth in your own heart first. And so the person who dwells with God produces good fruit with their walk, with their words, and with their works. They speak truth to themselves first, and then they're careful to go speak truth to others and live out what they say they believe. Friends, what what comes out of your mouth reveals what's going on in your heart. And the way that you live your life reveals who you're listening to. Who are you listening to? It's evident in the way that we live. Look at verse 3. It says, This person does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. Now, the ESV uses the word slander here. The King James Version says backbite, but it means to be a tale bearer. Does that, does that make sense? You're telling tales. You're, you're, you're leading someone around is what it means. So we can't speak lies in our own hearts, but we can't speak lies to or about other people either. Gossip and slander are some of the quickest ways to destroy a family, an organization, and the church. If we see flames burst out in the back of the auditorium, it's right for somebody to yell, fire, right? It's right for somebody to do that. That way, we can be warned and we can flee to safety. But when we see the spark of a gossiping tongue, we don't often respond with, fire or stop that, we often respond in interest and listening, not warning. But if we read the book of James, he says that the tongue is, in fact, even more dangerous than a flame because it just destroys and devastates relationships, families, churches, people. Especially with the technology that we have access to now, you can easier than ever before, pass on information without ever verifying the truth behind it. So if the devil, if the devil is described as a liar and the father of lies, and he is, then what makes us think that there's anything good about backbiting, gossip, or slander? Brothers and sisters, fire. Run away from it. Warn others of it. 16th century commentator John Trapp says this, the tale bearer carries the devil in his tongue and the tale hearer carries the devil in his ear. 
David and Jesus agree on the remedy to this problem, though. Do no evil to your neighbor, David said. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Jesus explains this further. He says, love the Lord your God with everything that's in you, heart, soul, mind, strength. And then you'll be able to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest command, Jesus said. Loving our neighbor as ourselves will make us look out for him. It'll make us careful not to injure his reputation or pass on untruths about his character. The person who does that kind of thing is not the person that David is describing in Psalm 15. Who will dwell on his holy hill? That's the question, right? Well, verse 4 says, The person in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This person with integrity, keeps right and wrong straight in their mind. That's harder now than ever before, maybe. And I think more people struggle with that than ever before. People like this, though, maybe you've heard the phrase, they call a spade a spade. They call it what it is. They keep things straight in their mind and also in their walk. It reminds us probably of Isaiah 50, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 21. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. The person of integrity keeps that straight in their heads and in their walk. Guys, it is right to flee from what is evil and run to what is good. It's right to turn away those who do evil and welcome those who do good. That's the kind of thing that God does, right? He welcomes the person of integrity. We should too. The person with integrity even, it says here, swears to his own hurt and does not change. If this person makes a promise, he follows through on the promise, even when it's an inconvenience to himself, even when it might cost himself. I think there's, uh, according to the verses that follow this, there's a little bit of financial thing involved here. They keep that promise. Maybe they've made a promise in a business dealings, and now all of a sudden it's going to cost them to keep their word person of integrity follows through even when it hurts because their, their character is more valuable than what they might lose in keeping that promise. They've come to understand that integrity is more precious than money. At its core, though, I think that the issue in all of this is trust. It's trust. If we keep our promise, even if it hurts, do we trust that the Lord will provide for us in what we need? Will he see us through? Will God come through for us in his way and in his time? Believers, our families are watching. Parents, our kids are watching. Church, the world is watching. Do we keep our promises? We ought to because God keeps his. Even in our business dealings, I think even there, that's a reflection of our faith. Do we have integrity in those things? Guys, the truth is, 
you can almost always rebuild your bank account, but you can't always rebuild your integrity. We should keep our promises, Christians. We should be faithful for our integrity's sake, for our family's sake, and for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. If we continue reading the next few verses in Isaiah 5, we get help understanding what David means in Psalm 15, verse 5. Who will dwell on his holy hill? Look at Psalm 15, 5. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? He who does these things shall never be moved. Bribery and overcharging interest were common practices, but it's not supposed to be that way among God's people. Among people that have been redeemed and been forgiven much, it's not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be people of integrity. And Isaiah 5 helps us with this, if you're following along there. Verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, this is sounding familiar, right? And as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. The person of integrity honors God with their heart, with their words, in their lives, and with their finances. And they don't cheat others. If the opportunity arises to make money in a suspect way or at the expense of someone else or exploiting someone else, we should call it what it is, right? Call a spade a spade. That's sin. And we should avoid it. We should flee from it and not participate in it. Again, integrity is more valuable than anything you could buy with the money that you might make in a bad business deal through dishonesty. Now, David began Psalm 15 with a question, but he ends with a definitive statement here. It says, he who does these things shall never be moved. That's the goal, I think, of every Christian. I think every person wants to be seen as somebody who fulfills their promises, but every Christian certainly should want to be strong, should want to be immovable, set on the rock, I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, man, I just really hope that people see how wishy-washy I am today. I just, I just really hope that people notice that I have poor ethics and low morality. Nobody gets up saying that. Nobody does it. In the old covenant system, this type of stability, this life of stability is a blessing from God for people that are obedient. That followed the covenant of life. Obey and you'll be blessed. But under the new covenant, this promise and this security is given to those who abide in faith. And this faith is evident through a life lived in obedience. 1 John 2.17 says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The person of integrity then will be an immovable guest in the house of God forever. They will be immovable. Now, I'm not sure if you've had this thought as we've been talking this morning and looking at this psalm together, but I have. And it's this. I don't come very close to this standard. 
I, I can just think back on my week and think of the ways that I compromised. Think of the things that I did that maybe were not quite fully honest. Think of the times that I got angry who I, where I wasn't patient. Only a person who is righteous in every way has the right to be a guest in God's house. And if that's true, and it is, where's the hope for me? I'm in trouble. Maybe you're right there with me. You know what, though? The Lord helped me see, and maybe you've already been shown this too, but this completely unrealistic, incredibly high standard is the standard by which we're called to live. It's there. That's truth. If we're to be in a relationship with God, and we're going to be accepted in order to live in His holy tent, in His holy temple, tabernacle, forever, that's how you do it. Be perfect, as He is perfect. By God's grace, we have been called to pursue the impossible. But then the question comes, well, gosh, isn't it unfair for God to ask something or demand something of us that he knows that we can't do? In our fleshly mind, of course, that's the question that we would ask. But I think this calls to mind something that we just can't miss. This call of God is something that we can't miss. The call to do the impossible when we know we can't is meant to drive us away from our own righteousness, away from our own strength, away from our own wisdom, and to drive me and you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because every one of us looks back and says, I've blown it. I can never be a guest in the house of God forever if it were up to me. But the gospel says that it's not up to you. It's only at the cross where you find forgiveness and the power to do what God's calling you to do as his child. And that's the gospel message. God is righteous and he demands righteousness and he's right to do that. You and I, though, are not righteous. So there is a problem. The solution is that Jesus fulfilled God's demand. When you believe His righteousness is applied to you. That's how a person who falters in their integrity finds an eternal home in God's house. It's the only way. And so every day, God's people are to pursue His standard. Every day we should say, well, that's how I want to live. I want to live with integrity. I want to follow God that way. I want to be that kind of person. Lord, forgive me for yesterday. Forgive me for five minutes ago for not being that type of person. Help me now to take another step towards your holy standard with your help for your glory. I don't think we can really understand this psalm unless we understand that it's meant to remind us that we're never going to achieve acceptance with God based on our own righteousness. It won't happen. Second Corinthians chapter five twenty one, Paul says, for our sake... He made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This psalm calls us to abandon our own righteousness and cling to Christ. He is our righteousness. But the righteousness of Christ doesn't negate the call to Christians to be people of integrity. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, okay? We can't say, well, 
I'm never going to do it perfectly. And since Jesus already did it, I'm good. I don't have to try. You know what? This attitude or that kind of attitude reveals either a misunderstanding of the grace of God or an abuse of it. That can't be our attitude as Christians. Paul addressed this. He say, should we continue to sin so that grace can abound? No. God forbid. We can't do that. That can't be the attitude of the Christian. Instead, by his grace, we work hard at having integrity because Christ has already done it and has showed us the way and picks us up when we fall. It's easy and right to look at the description of a righteous person here in Psalm 15 and see where we fall short. That's easy, isn't it? Seeing our sin in this psalm should, in fact, drive us to Jesus. By faith, his obedience and righteousness are accounted to us. They're credited to us as ours. By faith, we're being transformed into his image day by day. In fact, moment by moment, more and more, as our lives are marked by the same things that, that marked the life of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 28 says that his kingdom cannot be shaken. Proverbs 12, 3 says that the root of the righteous will never be moved. And so all of this, I think, shakes down into this one sentence that I want you to hear today. How can the people of God be immovable? By trusting in the immovable, unshakable Savior. That's how it happens. You can't plant yourself somewhere and in determination live a perfect life. It will not happen. So we must throw ourselves on the mercy and kindness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The question comes then now to us, are we willing to give up trusting in our own efforts and in our own righteousness? And it doesn't matter if you're four or five years old, 54 or 55 years old or 105 years old. Your amount of righteousness will never outweigh your sin. That cannot be the way that we get to heaven. And God has made the alternative clear. Quit believing in your own righteousness and put your faith in Jesus, the immovable, unshakable Savior. That's how we become people of integrity. Because when we do that, he gives us power to pursue it on a daily basis and the grace to continue when you fall short? Is that your purpose in getting up each day? God, help me do better than the previous day for your glory that I might reflect Jesus clearer than I have in days past. Let's pray together. Lord, I started studying this passage this week with the fleshly mindset of how I can, in essence, make a check, checklist of how to make you happy with me. How to be a good person for people to look to. And you reminded me, just as you've hopefully reminded my friends here, Lord, you've reminded us that I can't. I can't be that kind of person. It's been determined from the start that I cannot And so I must therefore look to another, to someone outside of myself. So Lord, as we've talked this morning about speaking truth to ourself, not lies, Lord, remind us of the truth that Jesus has come 
and reconciled sinners back to an almighty God, a perfect God. And he's done it through the cross. And that we participate and join with you in belief through faith. And so, Lord, may you grant faith today to those who lack it. Help our unbelief this morning, Lord. Not so that we can puff our chest out and blab to everybody that, we're look, I'm a person of integrity. Look at all the things I do right. No, Lord. In humility, we walk as Jesus walked. May we love our neighbor. May we treat others with kindness and dignity in our finances, in our walk, with our words. And Lord, may we speak truth to our own hearts. I pray that the Spirit would move this week as we reflect on these things. And now as we sing this song in reflection, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.